In coming-of-age adventure stories, the central figure follows the same basic route, setting out on a journey, enduring challenges, and then returning home. Forever changed. In The Hero with a Thousand Faces, Joseph Campbell writes, A hero ventures forth from the world of common day into a region of supernatural wonder. Fabulous forces are there encountered, and a decisive victory is won. The hero comes back from this mysterious adventure with the power to bestow boons on his fellow man, end quote. Treasure Island, Peter Pan, Call of the Wild, Star Wars. The protagonist sets out and endures and returns with boons. And in the very best of these stories, the hero is also exposed to their own fragility. Pride is eroded, deep wounds are created, and scars are formed. Yet all is overcome, in a fashion. It was stories like these that made me an English major. 20 years ago at Michigan State University, American and British coming-of-age adventure novels captivated me. As I was captured in suspended reality with characters equally suspended between childhood and something else. I, too, was in that weird middle ground of life, but one less spectacular that I've come to call a quarter-life crisis. I was preparing to give up exactly nothing of the freedom I had found in books and libraries and writing. I also feared the journey ahead. I feared my own inability to accomplish something great. During the holiday break that year, my mom handed me an article she saved from the local paper. I thought you'd like this, she said. It's about Matt Parker. He's riding horseback across the country. He's what? Matt Parker and I were acquaintances in high school. We were in choir class together. He was two grades ahead of me. And now, there he was, in print, standing next to a tall, black horse. The article said he was traveling from the Pacific to the Atlantic on horseback. The first known American to travel by horseback on the American Discovery Trail. On a macro level, I was petrified by my inability to activate a bold life move of any size, never mind one like this. What I really wanted to do was write the next great American adventure novel, but I was too afraid to start. I was also jealous of Matt on a granular level. I rode horses for several years in middle school and high school, and I continued to beat myself up over ending my working relationship with horses. God, Matt Parker. How come he had it all figured out? Like every other person in their early 20s, except for me. English major, reader of other people's adventure stories. Twenty years later, 
after grad school and a career and marriage and kids and returning to horsemanship, my quarter-life crisis seems silly, and I've forgotten much of the panic and anxiety that era inspired in me. I also have less time for adventure stories. But I never forgot about maths and the jealousy of seeing my peer do something special. Twenty years later, I found Matt. Thank you, Internet. And I told him that I never forgot about his ride. Turns out it stayed with him as well. I got asked a number of times while I was riding, do you ever think about, did you ever think about giving up? And I thought about giving up on many occasions. There were a number of very low moments on the, on the trail that were very hard. And what I learned giving up, what, what would that look like? You know, and, and I figured even in my lowest moments, it was better just to keep on heading east and eventually you'll get to your destination. Over the summer, I'm going to bring you the story of Matt's adventure. It's the fulfillment of my own dream, in a way, of writing an American adventure story. Matt's journey took months to prepare for and three years to complete. This is the tale of one Michigander who did something incredible. And not for Instagram or for money, but for himself, for the adventure. This is Matt Parker's Ride of Passage. Chapter One. Come on down. It's strange the way that that time sort of stretches out. I mean, I was 22 at that time. And I didn't really know what direction my life was going to go in. And I didn't know, but I knew I wasn't very happy. In late 2002, Matt Parker was living in an in-law suite behind his older brother's house in San Jose, California. He graduated from Hope College in the spring and wanted to get out of Michigan. And I quickly got a job working at the Britannia Arms, the downtown Britannia Arms in San Jose. And it was just like a downtown clubby type bar and had good late, you know, good live music and stuff. And so I started um, bar backing at night and I would bartend during the day. It left me with just way too much time on my hands. Like, and I'm not, I'm not a, my brain is not a constructive one when, when it doesn't have a problem to solve, I guess. My name is Chris Parker and I am Matt Parker's brother. We've got a fantastic relationship. It is, uh, we are very different people. And I think that uh, we have had at times very different interests. He was, he was very adventurous. Matt was working typical bar hours, starting in the afternoon, working into the night, which meant that the mornings were his, which he actually didn't love. His idle mind became restless. And it was just kind of a strange existence. And so one morning, Matt wakes up. He goes to his brother's living room. He turns on the TV. 
and The Price is Right is on. Paul, what is the name of our next player? Bob, the name is Toy Bon Noyen. Come on down! Like, I was sitting on the couch, and it was very bright out and, and fairly hot, and I was sitting there going, well, it's beautiful outside, I can do anything I want, and here I am, like, sitting here, like, kind of like a bump on a log, and The Price is Right is on. And any time, not to knock The Price is Right, but any time I'm sitting around and The Price is Right is on television, <laughs> like, I feel like something has gone wrong. It's because it's a sick day show. Yeah, it's like a sick day show. Like, what am I doing watching this show? You know, there's, <laughs> there's a million things I could be doing. The next item up for bids. A wonderful acoustic guitar with case. And... The idea sort of came to me in some sense fully formed. Twee, what do you bid? $600. And I just started thinking, like, what what could I do? $650. What if you learned something um, that you you don't really know an awful lot about? $700. $700. Like, what if you trained yourself? Cheryl winded up. $75. What if, you know, like, could you ride a horse? Could you ride a horse across... To Michigan? $49. How long does that take? You know, and I started just like going through it in my mind. And within an hour or so of sitting through it and going, you know, I, I was like, I, I could do this. I was like, yeah, I could do this. I have the time. I have the willpower. I'm a fast learner. You know, grew up in the woods and on a farm and, you know, like, I, yeah, like, I could do this. And um, I started sort of putting the, the stuff together in my head, just like any other nascent idea. It's like I had no idea what I was getting myself into. It's like when you baby-proof your house. I'm like, that is the first step. Like, that's not even close to parenthood. And if you're thinking, that's an awful lot of hubris, well, Yeah. He was 22, adrift, with a prefrontal cortex still in development. Uh, I remember I called my mom after that, and I said, look, I have this idea, and I think I'm going to do it. And she said, well, what is it? And I said, I, I, I think I'm going to train to ride across the United States on horseback. And she was like, oh, wow, okay. You know, like, well, yeah, and she, she was always very supportive. And I don't recall what the, what, you know, portions of that talk were about, but I remember it was a very good talk. And one thing that will always stick out in my mind was when my mom recounted the ways in which they had, they had been supportive of some of the other cockamamie things that I'd done in my life. And she said, you've, you've always looked at things in that way. We, we thought it was a great idea when you wanted to backpack around Europe. And these are all very vanilla adventures i would say compared to this like this the what what the trip ended up becoming was a universe away from anything i had i had experienced that very day i looked up um horseback riding stables and i knew i didn't have a lot of money I knew that my idea was crazy enough that I that I did not want to tell a lot of people about it. It's like somebody who's seen Bigfoot. You know, you're like you don't want to you don't want to like you know, 
you don't you don't want to telegraph that necessarily, especially if you don't know if you're going to be successful. And in this case, so I kept my cards very close to my chest, and I wanted some horseback riding stable that sort of in my mind fit the bill of what I was after, but I knew it wasn't going to be some ritzy riding place. You know, I wanted some place that was like kind of in the sticks a little bit, not very ostentatious, you know. So there was one line that just, it was a single line in the, in the yellow pages and it just said Big Oak Ranch. And it was in, it was just south of San Jose in, in a town called Morgan Hill. I called him up and I said, do you give lessons? And this was like that morning. So like from the moment I've woken up before lunch, I had figured out that I wanted to ride across the country somehow, some way. I told my mother, like, hey, brace yourself. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm, I'm planning on doing this. And she said, okay, you know, don't kill yourself. And, uh, and I had found this, this place. Again, Chris Parker. And so he started going down on his off days and taking essentially horseback riding lessons or getting familiar with um, all of the care and maintenance and upkeep and um, I think everything that you need to know about a horse. Because, I mean, neither of us had, had ever spent any time around horses up until that point in time. I was looking at it as saying, okay, what are the pieces and parts that, like, where are the gaps in my knowledge? Like, what blind spots do I have? Which turns out I was almost entirely blind in this case. On, ho- on horses. On everything, you know, <laughs> on, on everything. Right. Um, so I drove down there and I saw it, and it was really nice. It was right on the western slope of a mountain range, I think a north-south mountain range. After about a month of going in there and figuring out, you know, like, this is a horse. This is, these are their four hooves, you know, kind of a thing, which I'd already known, a, you know, a decent amount about. They were only having me, like, ride around in the sand arena. And eventually I said, look, like, this isn't training me for the things that I need to do. I said, I need to be out in trails. Like, I need to be, like, throwing everything I can at this. And I said, this this was a nice, like, warm-up. I've already decided in my head that I'm going to be doing this, and I need to, like, take it to the next level. They were like, we can't just let our, our like, you know, the, the, the show ponies, like, out there in the big wide world. So he needed a horse. And this, dear reader, would become Matt's first big challenge. He didn't exactly know what kind of horse he needed, so he was introduced to a horse trader with several horses south of San Jose. Somebody at the stable somehow, someway had recommended him. That's how I got his name. And I met with him, and he always felt kind of shady to me. He just mm. felt like, you know, like a, like your typical horse, horse tra- salesman. Like a horse trader, horse you trader, know? Yeah. Like, and, um, like this the, horse is great. Yeah, like no the, medical the, problems. Yeah, the used car salesman of the equine world. <laughs> and he had, a, he had a paint horse down there. He had a couple different horses, but, and the prices were fairly steep. And he had this paint horse named Chief. And now, again, this is, this is how naive I was at the time. Because I wasn't thinking, well, wh- like, what do endurance riders have? Like, what? Are, like, I wasn't looking at it in that lens. I was thinking of it in terms of, like, you know, if they're nice enough or big enough or strong enough. Or, like, any any of my calculus had nothing to do with what 
anyone else had previously. Like now, having finished the, the ride, I could tell you that an Arabian horse is far and away the best choice for something endurance related like this with a close second being like a full-blooded Appaloosa. Um, and I was looking at this paint horse named Chief and I, I think I gave him a deposit of like 600 bucks or something like that. And he said, well, I'm, I'll let you know if I think he's going to be a good horse. I'm, ta- I'm, I'm going down to Tombstone, Arizona, and I'm taking him with me with a string of other horses for a trail ride for a client or something. And I'll let you know if he does really well, you know, and then we'll, we'll seal the deal when he gets back. And when he got back, um, he told me Chief had died. <laughs> he said that, uh, that he'd gotten some lung infection while he was in Arizona and died, like in the course of like a week, you know, a week and a half or whatever it was. And so I obviously I wanted my money back. He wanted me to like roll that into the deposit on some other different horse. And I just was like, no, nah, like I don't trust this guy at all anyways. I was naive, but I wasn't stupid. Do you think Chief really died? No. <laughs> you nope. think Chief was sold to somebody else? I do. Yeah. I do. Um, and I hope he lived a long life. You know, like, go, you know, go with God, Chief. And no, he didn't get his money back. Matt had, really, no experience with horses or horse people. He'd been on trail rides as a kid, but that was the extent of it. He was absorbing an obscene amount of information. How to ride, how to talk to a horse, how to talk to people about horses, how to nurture a horse's ailments, how to shoe a horse, tend to minor wounds, signs of illness. And the planning outside of the horse part was significant. He knew he'd have to ride as light as possible, but that he'd need tools for any anticipated hazards. So he got nylon ripstop saddlebags and equipped them with a tent, a sleeping bag, a fire starter, freeze-dried food for himself, a small bag of grain for the horse, a gazetteer map and a GPS system, a flannel shirt, a hat, a rain jacket, bandages, a horse hoof boot and a pick, a surgical staple gun, anti-inflammatory drugs, the head of a hammer, a hatchet, and a gun, a single-action revolver. Well, for, yeah, single-action revolver f- for, like, the uninitiated, I mean, it's a cowboy gun, so it's it's a gun that you have to pull the hammer back every time you want to fire a, a round, a bullet. And can you describe again why you, you wanted to take a gun on the trip? My dad basically told me, I was like, look, if you're going to do this, like, you know, I almost won't let you go without a firearm. Um, I was raised around firearms. Um, I'm not. To, that's not to say that I'm a supporter of them. I understand their necessity, though. And so when I started looking around for the first weapon that I brought, uh, I wanted to make sure that it was powerful enough to get through a horse's skull, like in one shot. I didn't. I didn't want. I was worried, like a nine millimeter, if I had to put my horse down that a nine millimeter might not have the punch that I was looking for in order to make sure I didn't have to shoot him twice. And what's the type of hazard you anticipated could lead to something where you would have to euthanize the horse? Mainly if they broke their leg, you know, went went down and had some grievous injury, you know, broke their leg or something like that, you know. Um, there's no real coming back from that if you're if you're in, in any remote scenario. Uh, now knowing as much as you know about horses as opposed to when you were starting, 
do you see just like the level of risk you were actually taking on? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's um, but it's calculated risk. But I mean, even for the horse, that's what sure. I mean. Like, yeah, yeah. And there, there was a so years, years later when I was done, done, I was, you know, long, long finished with the horse ride. There was a group of people who wanted to recreate my ride only want they wanted to go from the East Coast to the West Coast. Slowly but surely, people in that group started to sort of fracture and drop out of the expedition. And there was one guy left. And he um, he left from the East Coast. He was and started riding west. He got to some portion of West Virginia. He'd been on the trail for three or four weeks at least. And he tried to take his horse over a trestle bridge. And the horse put his leg through one of the one of the ties on the trestle bridge and broke it and then fell into the water below. And he had to get a local sheriff to euthanize the horse. And he had to have a local farmer bring a backhoe over and bury the horse. But when he, you know, when he woke up that morning, he was on this amazing life-affirming journey across the country with all the opportunity ahead of him. And before lunch, his horse had broken its leg been shot and euthanized and was buried, you know, before lunch. Did he continue? Nope. No, he went home. So, you know, I understood that there were these real risks. Like, for example, I spoke to a doctor before I left and I said, look, I'm going to, I'm doing this thing. This was very close to when I was about to leave. It was like a week before I was due to leave. And I said, well, what do I do, you know, if something bad happens to me, if I break my leg or something like that? And, I, and at the time, he prescribed me some, like, painkillers or something to to take in the event that I broke my leg or had something terrible happen to me. He said, because he said, these could help prevent you from going into shock. And so they were, they were always just sort of there as this, like, you know, break glass in case scenario. But that's why I chose that weapon. And I had a, um, I had my hatchet with me, which is like still probably my most prized possession. On his ride, Matt would need the gun, the hatchet, the surgical staples, and the painkillers. But not for reasons that he could have anticipated. He couldn't use the tent or the trail or the timeline he'd started with, at least not in the way he had anticipated. On the next chapter of Ride of Passage, Matt finds a horse and a trail. You know, here's a map. Here's a here's a guideline for how I can get across the United States on horseback. But nobody had any idea how to use it with a horse. They had no idea what the recommendations might be, uh, where water was. I mean, a horse will drink 15 to 18 gallons a day. Ride of Passage is a serialized story we're bringing you throughout the summer. Matt's story is told as remembered by him and affirmed as best as possible through articles, documentation, and records collected along the way by Matt and his family. Special thanks to podcast editors Rachel Ishikawa and Mercedes Mejia. The Rite of Passage theme was written and recorded by Bob Scon. Additional music by Blue Dot. And thanks to you for listening.